properly and really what is the church. And we've been looking at some of these attributes that we speak of as the church, historic and classical ones known as this, the Nicene Creed saying that the church is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, and it's apostolic. So I invite you, uh, if your Bibles are there or on the screen behind me, in 1 Corinthians 1, the opening of the actual letter of 1 Corinthians. I'll read into the beginning a little bit, but we'll really focus in at verse 10, and you'll see that show up on your screen. Here's the word of God to you this morning. Paul begins his letter by saying this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. There's your definition of what a Catholic church is. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The Corinthian church was very gifted. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in that day of our Lord Jesus Christ, For God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And now we enter into the problem. And the rest of the whole letter is nothing more than a series of problems. Which is encouraging to read as a church. I mean, I would say at least as a pastor. So therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Or, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is God's word to his particular church many thousands of years ago. And that word has not changed. 
It's our word today to this particular church. Yes, even into the 21st century. We know from before about this one man in Africa, Cyprian of Carthage. He wrote a particular little booklet called The Unity of the Church. And he went out of his way to say, as the church was dividing over issues, to say he can no longer have God his father, who would not have the church his mother. And for us, as we've understood, and maybe any of you hear that phrase now, it strikes you as odd, or it might challenge you or rub you the wrong way to say, now, now, a human institution made up of humans, so closely connected to God's plan of salvation. How could that phrase even be remotely true when you see all of the corruption and folly in the churches? Well, it's because God's always been using people to save the world, even more so now that he incarnated his own son. That there is a way in which the church is a unique institution by which God's salvation is brought into the world or mediated to the world. And so here we look particularly at one issue, the Catholicity of the church. That's what we see, particularly in Paul's description to the Corinthians. Do you hear this when he says in verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, it's one little church, the whole world, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be holy, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that verse doesn't make sense, then you're not Catholic, right? The reality is that there is a church that is in all places, that is all people, calling on one name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformation in 1538, an Italian cardinal, Satellet, sent a letter to the government officials of Geneva. When the Western church was so broken by a reformation, because it was so corrupted and there was so much disagreement, it fractured along political lines and city-states and regions that had protectorships of various governors. And Geneva happened to be one of those bastions of what a group of people, governors would say, we need a reformation. The church is so corrupt with so much money and so much power and so much immorality and so much slippy doctrine that a reformation had to happen. Well, this one cardinal, Satellet, wrote a letter to them, the governors of Geneva, saying, now here is eternal life. Return back to the one true church, the Roman Catholic Church. And then you would understand, based on what Paul just said to the Corinthians, all believers everywhere in every place well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I don't want to be one sectarian group in Geneva just being a church. And this is really where we rest for the day. Because in response to that letter, one of the principal reformers, John Calvin, 
wrote. He spent six days or so aside, read the letter over thoroughly, and in a matter of a week responded with his letter to Sadaletto. I'd like to read one portion of it for you so you'd understand the difference of why he wrote the way he did. He says this. He compliments him. He's very charitable. But he says, Now, if you can bear to receive a truer definition of the church than your own. That is the whole nature of the debate for him. was a misunderstanding of what the church is. That it is a society of all the saints. A society which spread over the whole world and existing in all ages, yet bound together by the one doctrine and the one spirit of Christ, cultivates and observes the unity of the faith and brotherly concord, brotherly peace. That's his definition of the church. And then he says this, With this church, we deny that we would have any disagreement. Nay, rather, as we revere her as our own mother, so we desire to remain with her. You see? There's an echo back to this old African bishop, Cyprian. He's saying, no, no, no. I understand the church is our mother. And there is a certain truth in which you can't be divided from the church normal, under normal circumstances and claim to be united as God your father. And Calvin in response says, yes. And we intend to stay with that mother. The whole point of the Reformation is that you've misdefined the church and mystified everything. And so here we find the need, so much of an important need, particularly for us, for us as a congregation, particularly in our time in history, we need to understand how to confess that the church is Catholic, Catholic, universal. My one experience of this many years ago was serving in a mission trip in Kenya, in Africa, and I'll never forget this experience I had. Um, we were going to a completely unreached people group in northern Kenya, in Turkana, tribal people that were nomadic and always moving in huts and herding goats. And when you approached them, they didn't know if you put... We, we actually confused them by putting sunblock on. You know, being from Western PA, you've got to know what you're about. Um, and they thought our pigmentation was white because of the cream we put on. They've never seen a white man. That's how remote they were, I'm saying. And when we spoke of Jesus, they thought he was a witch doctor in the village next door. We said, no, it's not him. Maybe same name, different guy. <laughs> but the thing that struck me so much about the universality of the church was that as we were returning back across Lake Turkana, we got in a boat, and I sat with one of my friends who was a very wise man. He was a Kenyan. He was helping in the mission the whole time. He was the translator uh, he was very intelligent. He knew uh, English and Swahili and Turkana. And he could just speak all these languages freely among everybody. And he was eating a bag of cashews. And we're sitting there, and he had the bag in his hand. And it was bought probably in Nairobi, a larger city where you could buy a bag of cashews, being out in the bush now. And he looked at the picture on the bag, and it was a picture of the continent of Africa. And as we're talking, he said, So, where are you from? Like, where is your place? Where do you live? And he, he pointed to the bag. He pointed to the continent of Africa. And he said, show me here on this continent of Africa where you live. And I said, no, no, no. Like, 
I don't live on any of that. There's more to the world than this. He didn't know that. I said, if that was the bag of Africa, I'm over here in the air called America. And I've been enjoying this man's friendship that whole month. See, we both love the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't even know that there's a portion of the world that exists in which I lived most of my life worshiping Jesus. And yet he and I had this intimate friendship and bond. Universality. Catholicity. Actually, at one point I said, I'm trying to explain it to him, I said, uh, to someone, I said, do you, do you, did you ever hear of the Pittsburgh Steelers? And he said, no. And I said, I don't know what to say now. I don't know what else. I don't know how to relate to you. I said, Troy Polamalu, come on. It was like right around when they won the Super Bowl. No connection, but it was Jesus, you see. Catholicity. Even if I was from a different region that wasn't even existing in his mind, we were still united in Christ. And of course, now in the middle of this worship service, he was too saying, we have ascended to heaven and we are with the departed made perfect. We are a Catholic church. So here we find this reality. The church is united indivisibly. That is, the whole number of everyone connected to the Trinity by the covenant of God's saving power. Past, present, future, completely indivisible and invisible. The essential unity of the church is that. We are spiritually united to the one true God, the triune, undivided God himself. Romans 8. For the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. How are the sons of God to be revealed? Because they are invisible. There is a church that is not seen. There is a church that is perfect and spotless. And it will be revealed. Right now it is concealed. 2 Timothy 2 Paul says, God's firm foundation rests ashore and stands this way that the Lord knows those who are His. Invisible. To God, He sees it clearly. Just, it is a mystery. But it is the ones who God knows who are truly His. Romans 2 says, it is not those, Paul says, who are a Jew outwardly, as though circumcision was a matter of an outward thing, not of the heart, but by the Spirit, and not of the letter, it is those who are Jew who are inwardly. It has always been the case that the true covenant people of God have always been an invisible, inward, spiritual reality. Those who actually know the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who actually know the one true God and are saved. And so we say, that's good. But if you're telling me I need to be in some way associated with the church as my mother. So that I might have God as my father. How does that help me? Say, if the church is invisible, where do I go? If the church is invisible, how do I know I'm in it? Of course we know there is a Catholic visibility to the church. That the reform, the confession particularly is saying, is always and has always been the appropriate use of sacraments. And the proper exposition and reception of the word of God and the gospel. That's it. Say, how do you know you're in a good church? Maybe it has a smoke machine. I don't know how expensive they are. 
Maybe the lights are real dim. Okay. The reality is this. Are they honoring? Are they honoring the signs and seals of the eternal covenant of the gospel? And is that word brought out? And is it received so that the true apostolic gospel is preached, delivered, and received? That's the true church of Jesus Christ. A physical, real place you go. A real place you grow and prepare to meet your Lord in eternal glory. A visible church. See, for us, it's all about a unity of mind. A unity of truth. So we don't care so much how you look, how you comb your hair, how you talk, what's your favorite things to debate about. doesn't matter. Right? We don't care so much about outward appearances. The church should not be divided, but it should have diversity. Division is a negative idea, a negative connotation. Diversity is beautiful, but diversity with a particular unity, not a false unity. Not a church that we just say, oh yes, we'll just not talk about these various important issues so that we can maintain unity. That's not true unity. Unity, true unity, is defined by a singularity of mind over the most important issues of doctrine or, or dogma or the teaching of the gospel, the apostolic creed, you see. Look at how Paul treats them. You see what he says to the Corinthian church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in your mind, right? that there be no divisions. The word there is schisma. That's it. That there be no schisms with you. How do you avoid that? Who cares about the outward, simple things? That a church would be united in heart over its most beautiful and precious beliefs about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can find unity there, you can work all the other stuff out. But that you would have all agreement and no divisions among you, but that you would be united in mind and same in judgment. See, we are to mature. The church is to mature and progress in that. There was a time, you see, where the church debated about the Nicene Creed. The reason it was there is because there was a division about these issues. Now, if you don't even hold to the Nicene Creed, the question is, do you even understand the true gospel or the actual real faith? Right? There's a progression of unity. The church finds beautiful unity over these doctrines. You see that in Ephesians 4. Building up the body of Christ, united to attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, a growing, a maturation. So no longer being like children tossed to and throw through waves of winds of every doctrine. That is, the unity is about doctrine. The unity is about teaching. What is this gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? What is the triune God who made all things by the power of his word, the spirit of his blowing, and the actual decreed of the Father? How is it possible? Right? That unity is essential. That unity is what matters. There's a need to confess this Catholicity. See, especially because, as we know so well, particularly in our time, people are very divided and very consternated with one another on so many different avenues or fronts, and all the institutions of our society seem to be questioned, even down to marriage and gender and identity and school and education and politics and wars. Of course, this is just another day in the life of a sinful world. But see, the church, right, the church for us, as Christians to be able to say, no, but I understand another thing. I understand that there is a universal church. 
that cannot be divided. See, I was doing something around the house once, and I was listening to a podcast by a Christian organization you may, many of you might have heard of called the, the Gospel Coalition. And I usually don't stop what I'm doing for podcasts. And I very rarely ever make comments on YouTube videos because, you know, that's how you change the world. But there was a particular problem that was so frustrating when I listened. As one man said, you see, my idea of being a black man and your idea of being a white man is so much more fundamental than us being Christians. They said that. And I started a reformation. I just started clicking. And I said, don't say that. And maybe five people read it. At least now you know. But it's frustrating, you see. A complete lack of understanding. All the divisions among us. Don't you understand? If you don't say that the church is universal, that there is something bigger and more substantial in Christ, He is so much more glorious, He is so much more beautiful, there is so much unity there that we have yet to even have, because we can only meditate upon His perfections for five minutes before we start looking in our pants or looking for our skin color, and start dividing over race and gender and everything else. See, and the church just kind of gets carried along by these winds of doctrine like children. Forgetting, you've been given Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son. If you can't find unity in Him, it's probably because you're not looking at Him. You're not seeing Him for who He is. To see the glory of Christ, the church unites in that way. So the problem here with the Corinthians is this call to personality. You see, Paul says it's reported particularly among you. That there's quarreling. That each of you says, well, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. And that is how division works. It's all about people. Personalities. Stereotypes. Ideologies. See, we don't know, and people try to infer and understand what exactly is going on with these lists of names. Why is it that some are saying, I follow uh, Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is also Peter, the Apostle Peter. It could be um, because those who were brought to the faith or converted by them, particularly even maybe baptized by them, were uh, particularly loyal to them. Or it could be, in some infer, that there are various misunderstandings or debates around what some of these figures said. So, for example, in Paul's writings, he has a very uh, oppositional view of the law in which he uh, emphasizes the mercy and grace of God so much that it leads people toward uh, licentious living. And so maybe there's a misunderstanding of that in Corinth when they do struggle with a lot of licentious living. Or with Apollos, he's such a gifted uh, rhetorician and orator uh, that people are trying to follow him and saying there has to be a particular proud wisdom to the way we speak the gospel. That's where the power is at. Or with Peter, there's a particular division or debate that surrounded him regarding circumcision, that those who are not um, Jewish uh, Christians needed to be circumcised and brought in to the church that way. And so there could have been a contingent in the church that was trying to follow him by misunderstanding that. Whatever it is, you see, the point is, there's a division by following niche teachers or particular leaders and seeing the church as an institution led by men. That causes division immediately. And so Paul goes all, down, all the way down to the end to say, 
the absurdity of it all. Will one of you actually start a, a faction or a group called I am of Jesus Christ? That is, can you take Jesus Christ and manipulate him for your own ends? Is type, some type of division or debate within the church? It's impossible. Because Paul goes on later in chapter 3 to say, don't you know that see, it's just me or Apollos, whether I plant or Apollos waters. It's God who causes the growth in the church. The Lord builds the church. Don't be focusing on who has done what or how they speak or how they perform. It's irrelevant because they're just simply tools, just simply instruments by which the very power of God is bringing salvation into the world. This is the unity that Paul seeks to preserve in the church. And he gives them a refreshing reality check. That it's actually impossible. If you could divide the eternal trinity, then you could divide the church. For he goes on to say, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he goes out of his way to say, I am grateful. I am so thankful that I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius. So you can't start a sectarian divide over my name. See, the crucifixion, Paul saying, was Christ crucified for you? In what name were you baptized? That is, the symbol of crucifixion and death and the symbol of baptism united in the fact that if you pass through that water and you came out alive on the other side, it's a symbol. It's an illustration that, oh, so is Jesus for you. He has passed through the depths of death and come out on the other side. And how dare you try to divide his church when that name, when that blessing has been placed upon you. Should you not find unity? Should you not find ultimate supreme allegiance in your Savior? In your Savior? You say it that way. Paul brings out the absolute foolishness of everything he's saying. He said, Christ not sent me to baptize, but to preach. See, it's not a matter of eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. That is, this whole idea of being a very good speaker being able to say things very well. Paulos was very good at that. Paul says, that's good if you have it. But all that matters is that you're hearing Jesus. All that matters is that you know the cross. And what are the two things he says? Don't divide over baptism. Why? Because you are baptized, as we just saw, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Three in one. You are baptized in the name of Paul. If you're going to divide over baptism, then you might as well divide the Trinity by the name by which you were baptized. And if you're going to divide over preaching styles, if you're going to divide over the way Apollos is a better speaker than I, remember, it's about the cross of Christ. He brings it all back to say, the reason you're misunderstanding, the reason you're dividing over silly things is you have lost the vision of your Savior. And what is that? Baptism and the preaching of the Word? What is the Word and sacraments? The two external signs of the one true church? Those are the ones he brings up. Quit dividing. Look to the baptism, which is in the triune name. Look to the preaching, which is the true cross of the gospel. Unity. The true church. Right there. So the confession says this. The visible church which is also Catholic or universal, is universal under the gospel. It's universal because of the virtue of the true cross preached, what Paul just said. It's not confined to one nation as before under the law, 
but consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together in their children as we saw baptized. And it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. And the last line says this, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That's where it says. Yes, you can get saved as a thief on a cross. And you can get saved on a desert island by yourself. But ordinarily, normally, if all circumstances were presented before you, your heart will cry out for Christ. Your heart will cry out to worship Him and to be around His people. Whether they live in Kenya, or even if they know about the stillers, you still might even be able to worship with them. But you have to be drawn to it. If you're truly saved. See, see, see how Paul says, don't you understand whether I planted or Paulos watered? It was God who caused the growth. That is the church, Paul or Paulos. They did this work. The gospel goes out from the church. But the church doesn't save you. The church is the instrument by which the gospel reaches you. And then God causes the growth. You can't be saved outside of the church, normally speaking. Or how about this one? Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. You can't confess to the mirror in your bathroom. The Curry family confessed Christ before you on purpose. There's an internal salvation of God renewing your heart and justifying you. But it must follow with an external manifestation of saying, Jesus is Lord, so that others hear. And by that confession, Romans says, you are saved. You must be in the church to glorify Jesus Christ, confess him among many, and be saved. Acts 2, as people were coming to Christ, it says, they added to their number, that is the church, all who were being saved. They fall in line because their heart, the Spirit draws them to the body of Christ. And so, if that's the case, that the Catholic Church is universal, all across the world, undivided, in every place and every generation, there seems to be and to do this with all charity and grace, uh, a Roman elephant in the room. There is a church that calls itself the Roman Catholic Church. Have you ever heard of that one? Kind of big. Calvin's letter to Sadoletto, this Roman bishop cardinal, saying, we are the one true Catholic Church. Come back to us. He said, No. I just know too much of church history to do that. My hope is that you would find this very quick walk through church history so you would actually understand the Catholicity of the church. The few minutes we have, I'd like to show you that the idea of saying the church is Roman Catholic is an oxymoronic phrase by definition. Catholic means universal. And Rome's a city in Italy. That's already a problem. 
Roman Catholic, the Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church, in the section on what Catholic means, says this. All Christian churches everywhere have held and hold the great church that is here at Rome to be, and it's underlined in my notes, maybe in your mind it will as well, the only basis and foundation. Okay? Saying if you are not connected to this church literally in Rome, you're not a true church. The only basis to be a Catholic church is to be Roman. It goes on to say in the same section, it preserves this unity and communion under the successor of Peter. So now we're down to one guy. The problem with this is church history. There are seven ecumenical or Catholic councils in church history. Not one of them were convoked by the Pope or the Bishop of Rome. In the Council of Nicaea, which says the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic, he wasn't even consulted. The next council of Constantinople, he wasn't even invited, and none of his legates or delegates showed up. Constantinople too, one of these councils, the Pope, Vigilius, explicitly went out of his way to forbid that council meeting. And so they met anyway, threw him in jail, and took all of his names off the documents of the council. It's not an appropriate understanding to say that therefore the Roman church, that particular bishop in Rome, has been Catholic of the church all along. The Catholic councils have been perfectly functioning well without him and in contrary to him. And so here are three examples to see. And I take this time as almost a segue. Just I, We don't normally get into church history, but it's important to see. When we say Catholic, I want you to be able to confess the Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic Church registered trademark. The very first council, Nicaea 325, there's a canon, canon 6, which goes out of its way to say, that there are three primary churches that are very influential in the whole church of the world. Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. And all three were supposed to have equal jurisdiction and not compete with one another. That's a problem when the Roman Catholic Church says that we are the one true church from Rome and we are superior to all the other churches. Second point, Constantinople, 381. Canon 3 says this. The Bishop of Constantinople shall be uh, the prerogative or primacy and honor after the Bishop of Rome because Constantinople is the new Rome. Do you see the reasoning of the Catholic Church, the universal church, is saying, yes, Rome is a very big and important church, but Constantinople used to not even be a church, and now they're only second in importance. Why? Because Constantinople is becoming more powerful and politically influential, and Rome is waning in power, and Constantinople is rising in power. It's relative, historically relative. That's how the early church understood Rome's relationship. The Rome was a great church back when Rome was the center of the empire. Constantinople rises as Rome falls. And now Constantinople is becoming a very, very influential church to rival Rome. Circumstantial, not absolute, not of divine origin, not of divine nature. The last one, most tellingly, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 
In Canon 28, it says particularly this, Constantinople is the new Rome, and it says, quoting, equal privileges with the elder city of Rome, the original Rome. Equal privileges. You say, well, how does Rome deal with that? They just don't acknowledge this canon. That's simple. But when you actually look at their documents, they don't acknowledge canon 28. That's one way to solve the problem. But that is what the Catholic Church has said. You see? There's a unity. There's a beauty. There's a charity to being centered upon Christ, to being centered upon his word, to being centered upon his sacraments. We aren't schismatic. We aren't saying, and how could it possibly be the case that we were true that Paul would address all the Corinthians by saying, now, none of you say, I am of Paul or Paulos or Peter. When the very thing in the Catholic Catechism says, you must be of Peter or you're not in the church. It would be impossible for Paul to even say the thing if it were not true. You see, no, but the beauty is whether you find a stranger in another country who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and the church having relative purity and impurity based on what we believe and as we grow, that person is your brother or sister in Christ. Paul points this out, but we end, put this upon your mind, the words of Jesus Christ. He came to his disciples in Mark 9 and said, why are you bickering among yourselves? Who is the greatest? Don't you know he who is a servant will be least servant of all and he would be the greatest? And they were ashamed of themselves. And then John, one of the apostles said, now, master, we came across somebody casting out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because they weren't of us. They didn't, he particularly says, follow us. He didn't say, they didn't say, I am of Paul. I am of Peter. I am of John. Therefore, I can do this ministry. Do you see what Jesus said to him? Don't stop him. No one can cast demons out in my name and say something poor of me. And Jesus' definition of Catholicity is this. For the one who is not against us is for us. Anyone who names the name of the true Jesus Christ in the true gospel of the cross with the appropriate sacraments that he has given for his church, this is your brother. This is your sister. And you pray with them. You work toward the unity of the church for the glory of God and never divide or make factions over anything that is not essential to the very salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. So this is who we are. One universal church. Lord God, we ask, we ask, Lord, that this reality would be manifest in our day all the more. Lord, that we would not be hot-headed, that we would not be proud, that we would not think we know everything, that we would be charitable to anyone who claims the name Jesus Christ, that we would work toward unity. Lord, we pray for the unity of your church. We pray for the unity in the truth, a real unity, not a fake unity. Lord, we pray that we would be united and that Jesus Christ would be most glorified as he sees the church throughout the whole age lifting up this eternal gospel that cannot fail, cannot falter, cannot change. Oh Lord, until we pray for that day and when you come, that you reveal yourself and that there would be the revelation of the sons of God as all creation groans and waits 
for that marvelous day in which your church will be perfectly spotless and without blemish. Jesus, make this happen in our hearts. Please make this happen by this prayer. Amen.